Hello, my lovely people. Welcome to Staff Room Stories, where we take a peek behind the staff room door at what Australian teachers are talking about and what they ought to know. I'm your host, Emily Aslan. Join me each week, often with amazing guests, to explore the topics that are coming up in our real life staff rooms and our online teacher communities. Enjoy. Welcome to part two of this discussion about toxic masculinity and respectful relationships. If you missed part one, I strongly encourage you to go back and have a listen to that one first. It was released last week if you're listening at release time. The topics that we discussed in part one lead directly into what we're about to hear from part two. So please do go back and listen to that if you haven't already done so. And as always, love to hear your thoughts over on Facebook or Instagram at Staff Room Stories. So let's jump right into part two. Welcome back, Maria. Thank you so much for joining us again to continue this conversation about uh, masculinity and toxic masculinity, a term which last week we discussed is sort of characterized by harmful masculine practices relating to dominance, homophobia compulsory heterosexuality, misogyny. We also talked about the language used and perhaps we should steer away from the word toxic. And we also sort of talked about the need for compassionate reflection in this space and that this is not an attack of someone for being a man. This is more of a reflective lens on how these sorts of behaviours can be harmful to men themselves as well as to others. So thank you so much for coming back again today to continue the conversation. Oh, thanks, Emily. Thanks for having me back. And, and what a great summary. Thank you for that. Yes, and you're right, definitely not about uh, blaming or shaming anybody, um, not about pointing fingers. It's largely about understanding you know, the unconscious biases that we have, not just around gender, but race, class, you know, neurodiversity, understanding things like the learned behaviours young people have from the kind of environments they grow up in and the way the media and society impacts that. And the experience of trauma that a lot of young people have, particularly boys, because of the way that we expect boys to be less sensitive and, and often they might not be given as much affection and care. So, you know, there's that kind of trauma and there's that kind of trauma that young, a lot of young people are experiencing in households where there's a high prevalence of tension and, and domestic violence, unfortunately. So, yes, great to be talking about that again and uh, talking about in terms of, as you say, not around toxicity or, you know, pointing fingers around uh, at men as being poisonous in any way, but talking about in terms of what's healthy and unhealthy for all of us in, in developing our identity, our beliefs about relationships, about sexuality, um, and about how to learn and, and grow and be together as a community, as a school community and in the wider community. And, and of course, this conversation about toxic masculinity isn't just about what's happening in classrooms. It's, it's about our Australian culture in many ways, which is quite saturated for example you know not so long ago in 1987 marital rape was still legal in Australia so that's insane that's, to me that's two years before I was born yeah that's right I mean my mum mum had to give up work when she fell pregnant with me you know, that was the expectation 
That's right. You know, so it's in my lifetime I've seen a lot of these changes and unfortunately seen a lot that hasn't changed actually and actually in some ways we've maybe even gone backwards. But, you know, let's talk about what's healthy, what we want to see, what we can envision in terms of communities and relationships and young people and being healthy and working together to proactively, I suppose, and, and learning about ourselves and our own understandings and unconscious biases and behaviours and working on that as the basis for working with our professional community and, and our students and, and their families and wider communities. Yeah, well, on that note, you had sent me a fantastic video that I'll put the link to in the show notes for our listeners can go and watch it. So this was produced by the Men's Project and I am going to play it right now for us to hear. And I would love to hear your thoughts on this after the, this little audio clip and how we can sort of move forward from here. Ask 1,000 Australian men aged 18 to 30 about the pressures to be a real man. The pressure to be tough, to be the breadwinner, to always be in control and to have many sexual partners. It's these rules that make up the man box and there are more people in there than you might think. When asked about these rules, two thirds of those surveyed said they were taught a real man behaves a certain way. 47% believe they should act strong, even when scared or nervous. A third believe men should be the primary provider for their families. And 37% believe they should know their partner's whereabouts at all times. Adhering to these rigid norms and stereotypes that make up the man box can be unhealthy and harmful. Young men inside the man box are those who more strongly believe in the man box rules. Compared to young men who are outside of the man box, these young men report poorer mental health and have a variety of behavioural issues that are harmful for them and others, particularly women. For example, 44% of those inside the man box reported suicidal thoughts in the previous two weeks, compared to 22% of young men outside the man box. 47% perpetrated physical violence in the past month, compared to 7%. 46% made sexual comments to a woman or girl they didn't know, compared to 7%. 31% get drunk once a month or more, compared to 22%. And finally, 38% have been in a car accident in the past year, compared to 11% of those outside the man box. Improving the health and well-being of our boys and men requires action across our entire community. But it starts with each of us thinking about the expectations, attitudes and behaviours that we communicate to our sons, brothers, mates and partners. Let's all break free from the man box and give boys and men the freedom to be the person they want to be. So some very powerful statistics in there. To be quite honest, statistics that I wasn't expecting to be that distinctly different between, you know, men who identify as being within that man box and men who identify as being outside that box. So how do we move forward from that? How can we sort of prevent these things in the first place? Yes, it's interesting though, isn't it? Once you start to think about it and ask questions and, and ask your students, you know, how clear they are about the box that they're supposed to fit in 
So for example, when um, we did the Respectful Relationships Education Pilot a few years ago, working with the year one and twos, we started off with a little survey with the, the kids and sat down with them and they had to um, tick boxes responding to what kind of toys and games and jobs they thought a boy or a girl or a man or a woman would do. And it was very clear that the boys had a certain set of, and you might imagine what they were, action-focused, technological type of jobs, and, and the girls the same, you know, wanting to be nurses and teachers, playing with dolls and so forth. So even though we think we've kind of broken open those boxes, we actually, once you start talking to the young people, they're quite clear. Even if personally they don't want to be in that box, they know that they, they should conform to that box somehow in order to get along and be accepted and be normal and, and that kind of thing. So, you know, starting to just be mindful that, and, and talking to young people. And that's where you come to realise how you can actually provide uh, counter-examples and counter-narratives in so many ways in the classroom, just looking, for example, jumping ahead to strategies a little bit, but, you know, what's in the library? What are in the books in your corner of your classroom? What examples of types of masculinity and femininity, types of families, types of race, gender, sexuality, all of those dimensions of difference and, and so forth are, are represented. But, yes, going back to the suggestion and, and reflecting on that really great little video and I recommend you pop online so you can actually look at the video presentation as well it's been a very effective program and I've worked with those folk they do terrific work they're from down in Victoria and would be very happy to come up and uh, talk to you actually Emily I'm sure but to get them on the show <laughs> this uh this idea of the boxes is something we need to challenge this binary idea of you know boys and girls are essentially somehow different and the way we unconsciously reinforce that and steer them in those different directions and if you just took a moment to reflect yourself how you know, from early childhood, from babies, we gender the kinds of traditions and clothing for young people. Oh, for goodness sake, you know, what are the gender reveal parties? What's that about? You know, mm. so great. We know it's a girl. So all of a sudden we know how we're going to dress them and, and plan for their lives and behave towards them differently. I never understood the parties. Like, are you going to be disappointed if it's a boy instead yeah. of a girl, for example, like you're going to yeah. show that disappointment in a party format. It's, yeah, it's so, a bit bizarre to me. Like I can kind of understand wanting to know in terms of your own per perceived ideas. You know, if you have a baby girl, maybe you do want to have a pink bedroom. You know, you're sort of allowing yourself to conform to those gender norms. But to have a surprise reveal, I don't know. Personally, it's something it's just it. it something I never quite understood but that's the that's a really great example because it's the idea that suddenly your expectations or assumptions of a kind of child or relationship or future you'd have with them have been dashed because if it's uh, you know going to be a boy and you wanted a girl and you're thinking oh I can't take them to dancing and dress them in beautiful clothes well you know what's that saying about your gender norms and assumptions and and the narrowness of what you might enable or provide for your child yeah and I've had to do a lot of work in that space myself like I have a son and a daughter yeah. and when yeah. we found out we were having a son first like in my mind I always wanted a boy first and yet I was mm -hmm. profoundly disappointed that he wasn't a girl and I couldn't pinpoint like I still to this day have no idea why I was so disappointed and then when we found out we we're having a girl second, I was like, oh, I get to do all of these things with her. And then 
I've gone, no, hang on. I can still do all of those things with my son. You know, he, he does quite enjoy wearing dresses and there should be nothing wrong with that. But I think, you know, with this generational sort of, I don't know if using the word trauma is the right thing here, but this generational trauma of these gender expectations and this extreme gender binary, it sneaks its way in, in, in ways that you don't expect. And even in people that, you know, I would like to think of myself as quite progressive, but I really do struggle some days with the gender binary and how, you know, how I should be as a woman and a mother and how my husband should be as a father and how my children should be, but really it it doesn't matter. Like I'm reinforcing all of these things inadvertently, but also not wanting to. Well, we're all a work in progress. Aren't we such a work in progress? And likewise, and, and I've been reflecting on this and doing this all my life, this work, coming from a, as a child, a family where there was domestic violence and from my early career as a teacher, I, I taught for a year and went back to study and did a um, women's studies degree and, and then went to work in the central office on, in the gender equity unit and, and went on to do work on the Bullying No Way project around, you know, the different dimensions of bullying and behaviour. And it's been my whole career in, in research and PD and and I just love it because I just see the transformative potential and, and how it actually when people start to click and and I learn but it's such an ongoing thing and I'm still learning but um it's so interesting you say that about your son just a quick story because I felt felt the same I I wanted a girl when I first fell pregnant yeah. because I knew about being a girl in this world you know and I think that's natural too. And, and of course, I had a boy and, and I was worried because I felt how hard to bring up a boy in this culture, not to be affected by this, these toxic messages, you know. And anyway, and of course, he's an absolute delight and, and, uh, and so sensitive. He's 27. He's just graduated with a master's degree in social work and he helps um, very vulnerable people in a maximum security prison that have um, are very unwell mentally and and have committed terrible crimes. So he to me has been my pro, my feminist project, if you will. He's just always had such great relationships and and just been so gender aware as he's grown up. <laughs> he might tell you too much, but <laughs> but um, <laughs> having a mother <laughs> who's always on about this stuff, and I'd come in and they'd be watching TV in the gate. Yeah, mum, it's all right. We realise that you know there's gender stereotypes <laughs> at play in this narrative. You don't have to tell. Good, us. thank and, you. <laughs> I'm glad you know now. <laughs> so and this is what it's about for all of us I guess just understanding these gender narratives and when you think about the traditions and clothing and media and advertising and games and toys and stories and the sort of sport and leisure activities and homes and families and then inevitably we take on these stereotype roles because that's how what the system puts us in as women we often just end up being the one that's mainly at home and difficult to progress with our career and where are the leadership opportunities for us in where you can't do part-time leadership work or yes there's a lot of barriers that are gender related and so forth so we're thinking about these sort of systemic issues and the way that these boxes are created and and how you know, much more healthy it is if we can break down those binaries. Thinking about those gender norms 
that come from all of those different dimensions. The girls are focused on babies and makeup and fashion and, and their work becomes largely private and unpaid as mothers or even working in the humanities, for example, teachers and much less well-paid than lawyers, for example, or folk that work in IT and industries that are dominated by men. Girls are kind of expected to be more cooperative, more emotional, more nurturing, weaker, softer. You know, when you think about all those images and messages, more dependent, more about their bodies. And the expectations around boys are more towards, you know, gaming and sport and computers and physical sciences and being self-reliant and strong and tough and even aggressive and competitive, all of these kinds of stronger and harder qualities that aren't in themselves unhealthy but can be if that's your dominant way of being or what you're relying on for your identity. Thinking about comparing those kinds of expectations and how they might influence the way girls behave then if they get all these messages and of course the way boys are behaving which is some of the problems that we're talking about. And it's not just about the behaviours, of course, in the classrooms and wider society. It's about how it affects their engagement with learning in schools. And we know that that's been a big issue for, for boys, for example, engagement with literacy and literature and learning, the disruptive behaviour in the classroom, the kind of idea that it's cool to be a fool and play up in front of the teachers and get kudos from their mates like that, this kind of dynamic that goes on. So the more that we are aware of and interrogate these gender norms and expectations, we can see how it affects uh, so many aspects of relationships and, and behaviour in the classroom and, and in the staff room and in the wider community. And we start to think about how we can intervene then by what we do in the classroom, what we reinforce, the kinds of examples we use in our curriculum, the kind of expectations we have of the roles that kids might play in the classroom, helping roles, for example. You know, and, and I'm sure a lot of you have thought ex extensively about this. And Emily, you might even have some examples from your conversations that you've had with teachers as well. Yeah. So there's been a big push for classroom profiling in Queensland recently where a classroom profiler comes in and profiles your teaching and it's a non-judgmental process where they just observe what you're doing. And through that, they found that teachers will give male students far more attention than they will give female students, even when there's no misbehavior, there's no, you know, exceedingly good behavior. It's just a stock standard lesson. And yet the male students are receiving far more attention. So I think, turning a bit of a lens on our own practice and how we're interacting with our own students and inadvertently perpetuating those cycles and that sort of toxic culture where we sort of expect the boys to misbehave, but we expect the girls to sit quietly and, and listen attentively. <gasps> and then even when you come across a female student who isn't sitting quietly and paying attentively, they get treated in a different way to a boy who's exhibiting that same misbehavior like the boy might be it's more expected it's more normal for them to misbehave in a certain way but if a girl were to do it it's very unusual and it's more shocking I guess yeah yeah, yeah. for a teacher to come across like yeah. I can think of a past student that I taught she was a girl and looking back on it now she was exhibiting the exact same behaviors that quite a number of the boys were exhibiting but 
for some reason always grated on me more when it came from her. And I wonder if that's because, you know, subconsciously I expected her to be better than that. Whereas subconsciously the boys were, you know, boys being boys as that awful saying is. Exactly. That's a fantastic example of one of the best ways you can just put the lens on yourself and and your own reactions to. And it's one of the activities I, I always do with teachers to say to them, each time you face a child and they're communicating with you, try to imagine them, if they're a boy, imagine them as a girl and think about how that might change your feeling toward them or their receptivity or just as an experiment, you know, will it make a difference to how you respond? Just stop and pause and think about that for a moment. And, and come back after a few days or the next week and we're like, oh, well, you're so right. You know, I realised that I'd automatically assumed that the boy was being naughty or whatever. What, what teachers would say mostly was that when they were speaking to boys and they did what I suggested and just pause for a moment and imagine that child as a girl, just for the exercise of imagining how they would respond to this issue and this presentation in that moment if the child was a girl, they found themselves feeling in some ways more kindly and more tolerant and more open and more willing to give the benefit of the doubt, have a conversation, that kind of thing, because expectations are that girls are are good. (laughs) And I noticed that a lot in myself. And I noticed it, interesting, that little example was about... I had two daughters, I have a son and two daughters, and my middle child was very much like her brother and ran around and played with all his friends and liked to have a haircut short and wear his hand-me-downs. And I was always very conscious about being whatever you want to wear kind of thing with the kids. So it was a mix of clothes. And my youngest daughter had very curly hair that she liked to wear long and she liked the fairy dresses. We used to go to soccer training for about three years. We went to my son's soccer training together and the little the two girls would play. And it wasn't until about the end of the third year where it came up in the conversation with the group of parents that I'd been hanging around with for these three years that they didn't realise that uh, Ruth right. was, a, was a girl. They all thought she was a boy. And they were so shocked that it was so apparent on their faces that they all of a sudden felt like they didn't know who she was or how they should talk to her or behave towards her because I'd been noticing that they'd been all, you know, how you going, mate, to her and encounters just on the side while we watched the soccer games and practices and and everyone would be, aren't you a sweetie, cutie, little darling thing to my littlest one who was looking very girly and the stark difference in the way that they'd already been communicating with them. But I never brought it up until this came up, you know. So it was uh, in the classroom as well. And just being mindful of... uh, becoming aware of what's unconscious and the way you're looking and the expectations you have towards everybody, um, but particularly in terms of your gender expectations. And and in the classroom, that looks like looking at, you know, the way gender is represented in the literature you use and the kind of plays or the stories and the content and materials in your classroom, how diverse that is what kind of subjects the students are encouraged to excel in. You know, girls are less encouraged in STEM subjects still, even though there's been quite a push for that. 
how do you respond to gender-based violence? Is there an element of old boys will be boys or it's just too hard or, you know, I can't deal with that. I'll just send them to the office and, and hope it's a better day tomorrow. Not having those sort of hard conversations with the boys. And those hard conversations can't happen without the support of the school and without a lot of preparation because it is hard and that's why it's not happening. Teachers don't feel emotionally equipped. They don't feel they have the language. When we talk to them, they say, well, you know, I get started but I get lost and it it does. It ends up undermining me and, and damaging the relationships. So this is something that we need to work on in ourselves and in our own communities and being having these conversations. And But, you know, before all of the explicit conversation and, and alongside that, of course, there's, there's the implicit curriculum and the environmental thing and, and what's in the curriculum that can disrupt all of these gender norms and stereotypes in so many ways. So you're doing graphing for maths, so you're graphing mineral exports uh, to China, or are you graphing the number of women in political leadership in Australia? <laughs> you know, what are you, what, what are you, like, issues are you shining your light on? The, where can you change that? You see so many opportunities, it becomes an organic thing, an emergent thing, something that's not forced, something that you feel like you've got to do, but, you know, you're doing with trepidation and, and you know, that's why I guess the end conversation is really about having good quality support and resourcing for this work and being aware of the risks of going too hard and too fast with the, in your community and with the kids. So what I'm hearing you saying here is that there are many different ways that teachers can sort of approach this within themselves and within their classroom to break this cycle of toxic masculinity that isn't actually going to be like a head-on approach. It's sort of coming in from the sidelines, changing your day-to-day practice to be more inclusive and to break away a bit from that, you know, the stark gender binary and really taking a reflective look at, you know, like you said before, even what books are on display in your classroom which students are you choosing for particular jobs? How are you presenting different aspects of the curriculum? So it seems like there's quite a lot of things that teachers can do above and beyond and separate to any work that the government's trying to do with respect to education. You know, we can come in within our own daily practice and make these tiny little tweaks that can maybe not explicitly shine a light on this issue, but trying to support the students unconsciously to combat these ideas. Well, a formal curriculum with explicit lessons about gender and power and deconstructing that won't be effective if the environment and the culture around it isn't reflecting those understandings. So it's it's got to be a cohesive approach. And, And that comes from the whole professional community understanding these issues really deeply. And 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 yes, there are great resources out there. I believe the department in Queensland will be working on developing their resources further. When we did the pilot project, we used the Victorian curriculum that was specifically developed for respectful relationships education, and we'll provide the link for that. And that has a lot of guidance about informal curriculum and pedagogy, as we talked about, about the environment and professional learning, as well as explicit curriculum, lesson plans and modules to use in the classroom. So I recommend having a a look at that. And I believe the curriculum in Queensland will reflect um, some of those kinds of more explicit content around gender 
it's a sensitive issue and a lot of governments have been very, you know, cautious. It's understandable, but I think as educators, we, we really need to get on board that this is important. And, and the school leadership is really committed and visible around these issues because it's an important part of the culture and the whole school approach that it's supported from the top, that it's driven by, you know, grassroots and, and investigations in, in the classroom and in the community and done collaboratively with some really good support from perhaps from people in the department will be able to provide some of that, but on the ground in terms of professional learning and opportunities for staff to come together as community practice to actually reflect on how it's working together and not be doing it in an isolated way. It's really important that it's a collaborative and, and supportive approach, peer support for all of us, really. So this foundational work of developing, you know, a safe kind of communities of practice and a culture that, that enables and supports deep reflective conversations about all the sensitive issues and challenges that come up and, and addressing the resistances that can come up too from, from the kids as well as people on the staff and in the community when you start to challenge, you know, some gender norms that are often held dear and, and can be quite, you know, threatening for some people to think about letting go of. <laughs> Imagine especially, if, you know, if students are hearing all of this from mm. us as teachers, but then they're getting, you know, quite yeah. an opposite message at home that might be mm. reinforcing a lot of those toxic yeah. behaviours. And then here we are at school, just their teacher, telling them that, well, maybe you need to think about it in a different way. I imagine there's going to be quite a lot of kickback from students in that regard. Yes, and it's been our experience in some of the work we've done. The, a large part of the work has become working with the communities and families where there's been high rates of domestic violence. Because if, if you start speaking explicitly with young people about, you know, it's wrong for boys to hit or for anybody to hit and boys to hit girls and they're thinking, well, I'm seeing that at home and they go home and say, well, teachers saying that that's wrong. There are so many risks and, in fact, actually, I should have brought it up before, but there's some um, training that schools do around disclosures, for example, if young people disclose that they're experiencing sexual abuse or abuse in the home somehow and how to manage that. You know, it's in line with that that we really need to have that level of sensitivity when you're talking about issues of gender and behaviour and, and inevitably around violence and power dynamics and in relationships that's not just physical violence of course it's emotional violence it's financial abuse it's alienation it's all kinds of things it's it's the bullying that kids are doing between each other teasing and so forth so yeah a lot uh, it, that's why as again I say don't jump in and try and have these conversations yet yet <laughs> You really need to find the context of the school. Yeah, what I'm hoping the message folk will get uh, that, yeah, this is something we, we need to do. We need to be serious about it. We need to be careful about it. We need to start with a, you know, small group of interested staff, including folk on leadership, and start to think about how we can build our own capabilities be, before and, and become aware of the risks and how to manage them before we start to be explicit with this stuff with young people. This whole school approach I talk about is explained in the 
guidance materials provided by Our Watch, which is the national organisation that's been working for almost a decade now, I think, and supports violence prevention throughout the community and organisations and systems and, and particularly works on respectful relationships, education, resourcing and in schools. So that's the organisation that the Department in Queensland worked with for the pilot that um, I was involved with. So there's great resources there and the, this whole school approach model, I suppose, is what I'm talking about that's key. All right, Maria, we're coming to the end of our time for this second section on our topic of toxic masculinity here. I'd love to hear your thoughts on, you know, is there one key thing that you want teachers to take away from this extended conversation that we've had that's perhaps been quite emotional for a lot of listeners? Yeah, I think that emotionality of this change or transformation project, because it is such a personal one for all of us in many ways, means that we do have to centre that, centre understandings about our own psychology, about trauma, about healing, about managing discomfort, about staying in difficult conversations. I suppose the key message is around this kind of resistance that can come up internally and and externally, but also the the potential for engagement, the better we can kind of manage this feeling component the better we'll be able to engage and feel brave and courageous and I suppose able to be empathetic and compassionate even when we're talking about or or with people who might have caused harm and, and including understanding that where we might have caused harm ourselves and being able to be compassionate to ourselves and and continue to be brave and reflecting and and thinking about our beliefs and behaviors and how we work and what what more we can do to support others and develop healthy relationships throughout the whole school. So this kind of care that needs to be taken, connecting with yourself and your community, reflecting together, getting a picture of what's happening and acting in a way that openly acknowledges and and responds to this emotion and discomfort. That's the pedagogical platform for success for all of us, I think, and I suppose that's, that's my key message building that platform, identifying where we're already strong and building from that into these sensitive and and delicate and contested and difficult conversations that we're going to have to have, I think. Don't rush, start slow, start small. Remember Adrian Marie Brown's quote, moving at the speed of trust. I love that quote so much. I really love that. If we want this work to, to be effective and sustained, and really transform our culture, you know, and this is the amazing work teachers do for the whole of our society, really, and it's it's an enormous privilege and a responsibility, and I'm excited to, if I can somehow have provided a bit of inspiration, certainly there's a lot of great resources out there we can direct folk to, and, and we'll provide a, a list of those following up. Thank you so much, Emily. It's been great to talk about this. And I hope I'll come back and we can get feedback from folk about what they thought about these ideas, what might have challenged them, what more they might like to talk about or hear about. And I really look forward to that. So thanks again. Thank you so much for your time, Maria. This has been a very enlightening couple of episodes, I'm sure, for so many of our listeners and so many practical tips and advice for how to approach this within ourselves and also within our classrooms. 
If you'd like to continue the conversation, come and join us over on Facebook in the group called The Teacher Community by Staff Room Stories. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Staff Room Stories. You can also check out the blog at www.staffroomstories.com for full podcast episode transcripts, as well as articles about a whole range of other staff room topics. If you liked what you heard today, I'd love for you to tell your friends and colleagues about this podcast. And if you would leave me a review on whatever service you're listening through, this helps others to find us. Thank you for gifting me some time out of your day. I hope the rest of it treats you well.